Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Simon Humphreys, professor at the Faculty of Foreign Language Studies at Kansai University. Dr. Humphreys, welcome back to Lost in Citations. Thank you for having me back again. Yeah. If people would like to listen to the first interview, I believe it is episode seven, citation seven. So if you'd like to listen to that first interview, please push pause and go back and listen to that conversation. That seems like it was a while ago. Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was at the beginning of the pandemic, wasn't it? I yeah. Think it was beginning of like we'd just gone into like teaching online kind of thing. Yeah. So maybe April or May time, something like that last right. year. Yep. And the podcast and COVID both going strong. <laughs> I think it helps you a lot, doesn't it? Because there's all these trapped researchers around the world. Well, that, yeah, that was kind of the shtick in the beginning. Um, yeah. That no one could say no. No. <laughs> the chat. And, uh, and they know how, they can't say they don't know how to use Zoom or <laughs> they're forced to learn the technology. Yeah. They can't say my internet connection's bad. No, no. <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. though, you know, Chris and I have plans to move this project forward as we go back to face-to-face to -face conferences. You know, yeah. we actually were really excited to, to go back to JALT National this year in November. Unfortunately, that's gone online. We had kind of all these plans about, you know, in the future doing maybe live podcasts or certain types of presentations or, you know, I, I had this idea of having a social gathering, you know, how like Macquarie University has their alumni uh, party. I thought we'd have like a Lost in Citations guest sort of mixer for an hour. I thought that would be really fun. And so I have all, I have all, I have all these ideas. I, I, do I do hope that one day we go back to face-to-face -face conferences. It seems like academics are we're getting a bit skeptical you know, yeah. that it's it's never, even if COVID goes away, it's never going to go back to the way it was. What, what's your take on that? I was really hopeful that Chalt would take place um, this year, especially with it being at the Grand Ship in Shizuoka, which I think that's my favorite location because because my first Chalt was there hmm. back in, I don't know, 2003 or something like that. Um, so... I was really hoping we'd go back, and I th and I thought we'd, we'd have like vaccine passports or something like that, with because the government, you know, we've started doing the vaccinations on university campuses first. Mm -hmm. So I imagined that, um, yeah, it would be okay to go ahead. But I guess uh, schools and so on are behind, and also many universities haven't been able to get. There was a bit of a. Uh, a delay wasn't I think with vaccinations and then oh, and then delta the delta mm -hmm. variant taking everyone out so yeah, well I, just, yeah I hope 2022 there's there's a conference that I'm I've applied to I I haven't I haven't found out if I've, I've accepted or not is the International Association of the Psychology of Language Learning conference that's going to mm -hmm. take place in Cape Breton Nova Scotia where Peter McIntyre is from right and that was just, I mean, I'd be just so excited, exciting yeah. to see these people, meet them face to face, all these people that I've read and talk, I've talked to some of them as well. Yeah. I just wondered, the problem is these conferences, they have to decide well in advance, right? So like, when do you pull the trigger? It's almost safer just to cancel. They yeah, go through all the effort and the logistics and the planning and all that stuff. I think Jalt, they made the decision to cancel when, I think they waited up until the deadline when... The venue, you know, they would lose their, the, you know, their, their, their security deposit. Refund, yeah. yeah, refund, yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah, like, so, yeah, it's it's a huge amount of organization and money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, hope for the best. Uh, today we are talking about a book chapter. I forgot the language: Japanese students' actual multilingual selves and translanguaging challenges as English majors in Taiwan. But before we get into the chapter, I do not think we did this last time. I'd like to sort of hand the, the, the mic, the floor over to you. Can you give us your background and, and talk about, you know, your, your journey as, you know, from childhood through undergraduate and when you decided to become a career academic or a researcher and what led you down this path? I, I don't think we, we talked about that last time. 
Yeah, I, I guess the title of this podcast could be I Forgot the Last Podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember if I talked about this, so I apologise to listeners who might have paused it and then find I'm just repeating myself. Um, <laughs> My my family get mad at me about this all the time that I say things and then I forget I've said it or they've told me things and I've forgotten uh, that they've said it. So uh, my apologies. But yeah, um, yeah. So I really did. I think I think a lot of researchers are like this because I remember one at my first TESOL conference listening to uh, the plenary speakers there uh, talking about how they got into TESOL how they got into teaching. And a lot of them, they were like backpackers and things like that, and they just kind of stumbled into it in a way. Mm-hmm. And and I was the same. If you can, if you can imagine um, undergraduate days, like in a rainy Birmingham, I was at Aston University in Birmingham in England, um, a rainy, wet, cold lunchtime. And my best friend said to me, um, let's go to this um, uh, presentation about teaching in Japan for the JET program. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, okay, I've got I've got a class after lunch, so I can't go home, so go on, and I'll, I'll join you just <laughs> to pass the time. And um, then I listened to it, I thought, oh, this sounds really good. And I applied for it, and then I thought I'll do one year in Japan as like a kind of a a kind of a gap year, you know, a break before getting a, a proper job. Because my 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 um my area at undergraduate was business and French. So my I always thought that I would be working in the EU or something like that, working mm-hmm. doing business in, in Europe. Of course Britain, Brexit and that that good job I didn't go down that route. Um but yeah, so um, yeah, one year, and then I liked it. I did another year, found my wife. We went back to England. Uh, found both of us missed Japan. Myself too. I, I realized. I don't know how you find it. Like how you've been. How, if you've been continuously in Japan since you first came over, but I found the first time I came to Japan, I had like a rosy image of England, and then I went back to England. And realize it's not quite as great as I thought it was, um, as I'd remembered it. And I find it quite hard to like reverse culture shock in a way. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why I think it's good to do that. It's made me a lot more settled in Japan because I went back. Uh, that was in the late 90s and then came back to Japan in 2001. And I've been here almost consistently since then. And um, I, I've kind of slowly worked my way through like so i did a junior high school as a jet mm-hmm. and then i did part-time at an engineering college which became full-time in the countryside uh, a cosen so many people who've read my earlier papers were based on that cosen and my phd was also based on that cosen and i was quite settled there um it was a really nice place uh, in Mieken. Uh, it's my wife's hometown. Uh, beautiful mountains and the Pacific Ocean. But um, as you know how it is in Japan, you know, with the falling birth rate, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the countryside with people moving to the cities as well. And I think it's probably not just Japan, other, other developed countries too. So it becomes really hard for a private education institute a private college to survive somewhere like that and then when they when they moved uh, then i decided i i'd nearly finished my phd and actually I, I accelerated and finished my phd and then moved into um the university sector then mm. so, yeah so i i were, i did a contract at doshisha and then for three years and then came to kansai university in 2014, I think it was. Can you talk a little bit about Kansai University? Because I'm not sure people outside of Japan understand how interesting that program is. And, you know, I didn't set out to really 
promote Kansai University, but we just keep <laughs> on interviewing people from there. <laughs> you drew, don't you? You, you uh, interviewed Todd Allen, my my good colleague. Uh, yeah, I mean, his he, story was, was yeah, really yeah. interesting. And of course, Curtis Kelly. And I think yeah. one of the first interviews that Chris did was with, with Chris Ramonda. Yeah, he's awesome. So like Curtis is in um, a different uh, faculty to me, but I know him really well. And he, he's brilliant. Uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, Curtis very quickly got all, all the gaijin, all the foreigners all organized and we all helped each other out to um, to get over that anxiety to ha of switching across to uh, using all the online stuff. But yeah, he's a different faculty. And then I'm with uh, Todd and Chris, Chris Ramanda and Todd Allen in the Faculty of Foreign Language Studies. And also Anna Hoffmeyer was interviewed by right. Chris. And uh, she's a, a lecturer. So she's like an early stay, early career. But I think she's got a really bright future ahead of her. She's just finished her PhD, hasn't she, I think. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, our program, the Faculty of Foreign Language Studies, are, and we, we've also got a, a, a graduate school as well. And yeah, I feel really honoured to be part of that. Um, our graduate school um, is really, they're, they're really doing a really good job, I think, um, the research that they're doing. And the, the uh, Faculty of Foreign Language Studies, the undergraduate level, um, it's a little bit unique um, because for, for two reasons. What, one reason is um, all of the students in their second year, they go overseas and it's very highly coordinated. Like we, we help them quite a lot and link it into our, our um, third and, and fourth year curriculum too. Mm. And I kind of look after that a lot with Todd. Um, Chris used to be part of it, but he's moved into a different area now, a different committee. Um, but um, the study, the chapter I'll be talking about today, one of the interesting things is the we have what's called a dual language program where um, our English majors actually go and study in a country that's not English speaking. It's the country of their L3. That is cool. Uh, their second foreign language. So we've got France, Germany, Taiwan, Korea, and uh Kyrgyzstan. Oh, and uh, yeah, have I mentioned them all there? We, we've got about five, I think it is. And uh, so, yeah, they, they've been studying a little bit of Chinese, say, as their mm -hmm. extra foreign language. And then they go to Taiwan and they study English as well as some Chinese in Taiwan. So um, very, very unique, I think. And I, I think it's for high level students of uh, Japanese students who are studying English, I think it's a really good option to make them more employable uh, when they graduate from university. How did you get involved in the study abroad? Well, I think it's because um, the first job that I did uh, I when I worked in the Kosan, I... I um, I started a, a partnership with a, an engineering, well, not an engineering college, with, an, with a college engineering department uh, in England where my father worked. And, um, and then I think when Kandai hired me, probably because, you know, I talked about that in my interview, they thought, yeah, we can, um, we can throw him into this uh, part of uh, the job. And uh, he'll he'll survive. <laughs> so you said every second year student, it's a it's a requirement. Yes. How many students are we talking about? Uh, a cohort of English majors is maybe about on average 160 students, and we have uh, an extra 20 students of Chinese. But I, I don't deal with the Chinese part. But yeah. And you wait, like how much log logistics? are you involved with as far as I guess you have agents in the countries to, to help you. I mean, if something goes horribly wrong, not to be pessimistic, but mm. I imagine if this is a program going on for 20 years, 160 a year, like, are you the person that gets called at three o'clock in the morning? If someone loses their passport and like the downtown Kyrgyzstan, basically we advise our coordinators um, that 
that uh, when our students are overseas, mm-hmm. um, they're basically their students, and we want them uh, to look after them while they're while they're over there, um, and uh, to deal with most of the problems in house, like uh, uh, making sure the students are correctly cared for. You know, for, for any kind of psychological problems as well, guiding them to, you know, like pastoral care or or to the health center and things like that. Because a lot, a lot can go wrong. Mm. Uh, we we try to make sure as well that our our um, accommodation is, is guaranteed by the university and coordinated by the university so that uh, they don't have problems dealing with contracts with uh, landlords and things like that as well trying to kick them out so um but yeah we 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 also have a an agent from uh rugaku journal who is based on campus and she helps them with all the kind of applications the students because can you imagine like you know 160 180 with the chinese ones all doing these visa applications and mm. sorting out their flights and that there's no way like that myself and and Todd and the others could do all of that kind of thing because we're you know we're academic staff we're we're primarily employed to to teach and and research and and do all the other things that we do on the campus we can't be like 100% looking after all the individual student problems right there are a lot of so <laughs> now your your PhD research focus was more on student silence, correct? So, yeah. but now since you're, it, it kind of makes sense now that you're heavily involved in this study abroad, that you would start to conduct research study abroad. Was that something that just sort of happened naturally, um, like, yes, or was that kind of a strange transition? Yeah, sort of like um, when I was at the COSAN, it was to do with an innovation of um, of introducing communicative textbooks. Mm-hmm. And then seeing how the teachers adapted to that, changing to a communicative curriculum. And, um, yeah, the spoiler alert is it, it failed. It completely failed. Um, teachers continued doing the traditional style. With just just a quick a quick sidebar. That's one of the first memories I have of talking with you. <laughs> and I'll, I, that's why I was like, this guy, I like this guy. Because most people aren't like that. Like we were just kind of like most people, especially at a conference are always trying to like make themselves sound better than they are. And I think by the time I met you, I'd been at the conference a couple of days and I just, I just kept hearing people over inflate their value over and over again. And I talked to you and you're, you know, you're this unassuming guy and you're, you know, you're at this Macquarie thing and you got your PhD and you're talking about the Kakenhi and all this stuff. And, and I just was like, Oh, so, you know, how did your project go? And you're like, it just failed. (laughs) <laughs> oh, just totally fell flat. But but but, but that wasn't the point. Was like you were able to still publish, and and it's like not everything's gonna work. That's what I remembered. I was like, yeah, I think that's what our first uh, podcast interview mostly focused on, wasn't it? About right. Interesting it is when things fail when they go wrong, and uh, it's much better for I think for early researchers not to worry about that and to learn from the failures and, and not hide them, not try and cover them up and so on. And research it is really, really messy. But um, I think the messy research um, is harder to write about maybe and harder to express and, and tighten up. But it, it does make it more interesting, I think, for the reader or the, or the listener, definitely. Um, right. And I, and I think this is something that I struggle with as an early career researcher is separating separating your research from yourself so like you say you know tongue-in-cheek it failed but the point was well maybe your hypothesis or something didn't go as planned but as far as the research itself still has value to the field a lot of value regardless of whether it your hypothesis you know went the way you thought or whether the research went, went the way you thought someone can still read it and cite it and say well the, you know I'm doing my research this way because this research went this way. So it's still a value to the field, whether you think it, it went, you know, smoothly or not. That's, I think, a good lesson. Yeah, and, and I think that's in a way what research should be in some ways. I, I guess it should be like testing out theories, whether they, they work or not. So if we find that certain ideas don't work in certain circumstances, 
there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Um, it just gives us a better picture of how things work. Um, this study as well, this book chapter uh, for today as well, I mean, um, we were looking at um, multilingual selves and, uh, yeah, it didn't really work the way we thought it might. We couldn't find a very strong evidence of a, multi, of a multilingual self, an ideal multilingual self. So, yeah, I, I think um, it just helps to maybe fine-tune the theory a bit and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that, um, finding these things, yeah. I mean, I, COVID put a halt to a lot of the study abroad, but, yeah, you know, before then, did you see your research path is moving towards study abroad? Or do you still like to research, you know, different areas? Like, how, how do you go about planning, like, what you're going to research? for like next three, five years. Cause I know maybe we'll yeah. talk about it later. I know that you, I've asked for your advice in the past on can he grants. And it's, it's interesting because researchers have to think what they want to do in three to five years, right? Yeah. Get yeah. the money, you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, pursue it. And yeah. then other projects come along that might interest you and you do that, but then you have to balance your time and all that. How do you, how do you kind of go about that? Are you the type of person that's okay, I'm just going to do study abroad stuff now. Or do you sort of try to combine things you're interested in in all your projects? I think, like, we, yeah, I mean, we, we, we need to keep nimble in a way. And, and I, I feel like I want to be more nimble. Like, I was listening to, your, like, your podcast with, with Curtis, the, the second one, Curtis Kelly. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting. I was listening to, you were, you were talking about, like, he, he was talking about his newsletter and how it reaches people. And, and you were talking about how, in a way like the academic channels we use might not be so interesting to the audience. But another thing now thinking about what you're saying now is that another outdated maybe part of academia is how we, we do this planning, how long it takes us to get published and so on. Mm-hmm. So things are quickly out of date. And um, the, stu- the two studies that I've been working on Probably because I've been so slow with them, but I, I felt quite. I, I went. I, I took part in an online, the the, the study abroad sig their conference um, uh, last Saturday, um, and I really felt kind of a little bit out of place in a way because um, everybody else they're all talking about dealing with like online study during a pandemic and all that kind of stuff. And, and mine is still kind of more traditional about students who actually did study abroad pre-pandemic. Mm. Um, so I had actually been thinking about this. Like, So it's quite good you, you've asked this question. Yeah, it, you, you do start to reflect a bit, like, have I made a mistake? And um, like my colleague Todd, uh, he was interesting in the conference because he was saying how he set up his Kakenhi study based on study abroad. Then the pandemic hit, and then he adapted quite quickly mm. to interview students and so on about their adaptation to the pandemic. And um, I, I've just taken out a, a new Kakenhi grant, just started this year, which is based on uh, expanding on this book chapter study, um, looking at students going to Taiwan Germany, France, uh, Korea, and uh, seeing how how they get on, how they can speak, how their speaking uh, goes when they're in these countries, their English use and the use of the other language too. And uh, it, it does throw a span in the works, doesn't it? I've, I've, uh, I'm all ready to collect the research and then I don't know if any of them can go. So, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm totally in the same boat. Because all of my research focus is, it has to be in the classroom. Yeah. Because if we're talking about language learning anxiety or people being affected by different factors that move people towards silence or – those are all pretty much mitigated on a Zoom call. Yeah. yeah. So – and in the end, yeah, our, our research may be halted. But unless we're all going to live like robots behind a computer screen, essentially this, this research is still important. It's just it's out of our hands when we can conduct it again. I mean I think a lot of people would agree that, yeah, Zoom is – you can do some things and, and maybe some data collections are actually easier. I, I've talked to a few people where 
you know, there's these services where you can recruit participants and you can do you can do this data collection for linguistic purposes, right? Um, but as far as in the classroom, it, it's just you. If you take away students from the classroom, they're just losing so much of like the subtle things, you know, all the interactive things that happen, the facial expressions, the proxemics, like everything, right? So. Yeah, I, I think we're moving ahead. I think. I mean, when I when I look at because um, my 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 two daughters are um, at university. Well, one's in Ger- in Germany, going back to Germany uh, in October, and the other daughter um, has just gone back to England to start university in in the UK. And uh, the way that they're doing it, their universities is uh, the the what you know what would have been big lectures in a big lecture theater, so many students, which is a really inefficient way of learning, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like a, a huge lecture, just listening there. But they're going to be on-demand, on-demand lectures. And then the the other stuff, like smaller group work and so on, like in the case of my second daughter, she she's studying in applied medicine, so a lot of stuff in the in the lab and so on. So there's, going to, there's still going to be that, that stuff in smaller groups. And I think that will be an improvement, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think I think universities should do that. We should do on-demand lectures. And when you think about foreign language learning as well, I mean, we we um, we're used to it in Japan, aren't we? Where we we uh, we probably stand at the front and we feel a bit like a performing monkey. Um, <laughs> coming telling our stories and all the rest of it and then hopefully students laugh and you get a response um but um it's a lot of talking and you wonder how much is actually going in like if you're talking for too long uh whereas if it's an on-demand lecture the students can watch it in their own time they can pause it they can replay it and make sure that they've understood it so it's a much better way of learning so so not not 100 that way i mean you know just um more of a kind of a, a a flipped learning approach where uh, you have bits that they can study at home in their own time, uh, watch video lectures, and then come into the class and then have pure discussion and interaction in the class. Yeah. And, and I hope we'll do that in Japan. Well, I uh, think that, like you nailed it, the class size is everything. Yeah. So at a certain point, yeah. I'd actually prefer to have an on-demand lesson than, than cram into a 300-seat lecture hall. Mm. It's just too distracting. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just – it's so I, I – but when you're talking about interactive, you know, communicative classes, yeah, like a Zoom room is like – it's just so – I don't know. Even the best person on Zoom, it's not going to yeah. – it's not going to match the cl- – one thing that um, – I actually talked to Seiko Harumi again, someone you know well. I think her interview is going to come out after you. She's actually doing a really cool thing with her classes because she teaches beginning Japanese in England. Mm. And she's facilitating these conversations with um, Japanese speakers in Japan over Zoom. Okay. And it's, uh, it's, it's part of their grade. It's mandatory. Yeah. And sh- some of her research about translanguaging yeah. was regarding – some of her future research is sort of like watching how these students interact and, you know, she'll notice, oh, when the conversation gets sort of messed up, someone uses the chat on Skype and all this, like, she's like sort of, absurd. so I thought that was really creative, you know, so like, oh, yeah. that's actually a kind of a cool research tool. And that's something we probably should be doing anyway. Like, like, yeah. and, and I told her, I was like, let's do that. Uh, so basically the way it works is she has like a sign up sheet yeah. and and then your like you, your students or my students in Japan would yeah. sign up for a slot to talk uh-huh. to these people, and like the 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 worse our students' English is, the better for her, mm. because then her <laughs> students can't go back to English, and they have to speak for ten minutes or something. Yeah, and yeah. so like that experience, that ten minutes of talking to someone on Skype, yeah, is going to be way better than something that she's going to try to preach over ten weeks. They're going to learn so much, right, in that 10 minutes. I, I think um, it, that that's definitely worth people looking up, and, and I hope that people in Japan look up for Seiko Harumi's project there. And that there's also one in uh, our, that our university is involved in, not not my faculty so much, but um, uh, it's called COIL, uh, C-O-I-L, 
the Coil Project, and it's uh, oh, what's her name? She gave the 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 lecture, the the plenary at the Study Abroad SIG. But if you look that up, there's there's these various projects that they're working on, and you, and various Japanese universities are signed up for it, and then they can do these projects with overseas universities, like kind of like working on tasks and so on. And uh, I think that's a really good way forward. Um, uh, it's completely out of my research. If I wasn't locked into studying uh, what I'm doing now for the next four years, <laughs> right. to go back to your first question, I'd be quite interested in doing that too. It, it does look like uh, a good thing to do. I should probably introduce it for some of my students. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the chapter. I forgot the language, Japanese students' actual multilingual selves and translanguaging challenges as English majors in Taiwan. Can you kind of set the scene with your, your co-author and uh, how, does this, how does this chapter fit into the book and, and you know, how, how did this all come to be? Yeah, so, I mean, as I was saying earlier, I feel really lucky to be in, in, the, in the graduate school at, um, at Kansai University, and, and one of the reasons is because of uh, Tomoko, uh, Tomoko Yashima, because, um, I mean, she doesn't really need any introduction. She's, she's um, really uh, famous throughout the world, isn't she, for her work on, on uh, motivation, on uh, international posture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, when I first arrived at Kandai, I was really keen to work with her, but um, she was r- really busy with other things. So it was kind of a, a nice surprise, actually, uh, when she came to me because uh, I deal with the, because I look after the study abroad program, uh, to ask if we could work together um, studying the students in, in Taiwan. And uh, she also, at the same time, I invited her onto my Kakenhi project as well for looking at capacity to speak and silence and so on. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, so the, she, I think her PhD student um, was also, so I think that was the first reason. I think her, her PhD student wanted to uh, look at how students were using the language and their motivation in Taiwan. And then, uh, then we started working together on our own project that kind of followed on from that. And what's the name of the book? English Medium Instruction Translanguaging Practice in Asia, Theories, Frameworks and Implementation in Higher Education. So we always have a big ma- big mouthful, don't we, with the, our titles? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have to be honest. Um, so... This has happened before as well, because I, I think I've written six or seven book chapters now. Mm-hmm. And um, it does happen sometimes where um, somebody's talking about a book that they're going to do, and then you you jump at the opportunity to to take part in it, you know, to get the publication and um, to try something as a, as a new challenge. And um, in this case, because um, we'd requested permission from our colleagues in Taiwan um, for studying our students there, how they were using uh, English and, and Chinese in, in Taiwan. Because they were aware of that, uh, the, the editor who, who works at our partner university, uh, National Chen Kung University in Tainan, southern Taiwan, uh, asked if uh, we'd like to write something for the book. Mm-hmm. So um, and and then she said it's about translanguaging, and I was like, translanguaging sounds like one of these like made up words. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have to admit, I, I had to look up what translanguaging was, and I had to say to her like, can you just send me some like introductory uh, kind of um, you know uh, publications like to like especially about. Um, you know, students actually using uh, translanguaging um, in the university context. Because, because uh, as well, translanguaging seems to be a lot more, when you start reading about it, initially anyway, it's uh, very much a political thing mm. where um, it's more to do with, in a way, uh, for example, a lot of the research is in, say, uh, 
Africa, where they're talking, where they're looking at um, the, the the power of these different tribal languages, or or maybe uh, in the UK, for example, where you've got um, migrant communities, um, or or even like uh, originally it started in Wales, I think, um, mm. that for the survival of Welsh uh, mm. using translanguaging in Welsh. Um, so it's it's very much a political thing. Um, Whereas in our case, um, I don't think our students really care um, about the survival of Japanese because uh, in Japan, you know, Japanese is strong, and then when and then they they learn English and they feel English is you know this language that they can use to get a job and so on, and mm-hmm. maybe international posture uh, and international community that they can join um and then they go to say taiwan and and um they'll use the chinese for talking there so it's definitely not that political element but um i think for our students um and and for moving forwards the interesting thing for me about translanguaging is uh that's different from code switching i've written about code switching in the past and that was another thing that confused me like why is this necessary to like rename code switching mm-hmm. um, isn't it the same thing but um code switching is more kind of where the idea that you you're you're um, moving from one language to another and in a way it's almost like um it, you're deficient in your language something like that when you're when you're code switching whereas the idea of translanguaging is that you've you've got like a repertoire like a toolbox inside you and then you can choose the tools as you want to Mm. to do the job and um so it's coming it's like it's like a a myriad of emotions and feelings and and power through these different languages and you can almost take on different roles um for me, like, because I learned French when I was younger, French has a certain kind of feeling about it, like uh, memories, they're all intertwined into it from growing up. English is, again, different. And then Japanese, too, it's like different kinds of feelings. Um, so it's kind of accessing these different things. And it's the idea that, I mean... I mean, you've got children too. For our children growing up as well, um, with Japanese and English, mm. it's it's nice to think of translanguaging that um, even though in school they might be being encouraged to try and get Hyakuten Manten, 100 out of 100 for their kanji study, and they might feel uncomfortable on certain things, they might not be complete. I mean, they're even called half, aren't they, half uh, mm. at school. So even though they might be... F- led to feel that they're a little bit incomplete uh, in Japanese. And then when they go to England, uh, when they go back to their home country, uh, they also might feel from living in Japan that their English is not up to scratch with the local children. It actually doesn't matter because they've got this something extra and there's nothing wrong with that. And, And the world is changing. The world is becoming a lot more multilingual migration around the world and so on mm-hmm. so uh, we're kind of moving away from this kind of native speaker gold standard this idea of perfection and um and it's a myth anyway isn't it i mean when you go back home uh my, my daughters were laughing about like where we lived in england for a year uh, the the local dialect listening to how it's so completely inaccurate compared to textbook English. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I feel... So I think one takeaway with translanguaging, which I, I didn't know before I studied it, is the fact that um, it's actually... This, it takes the pressure off uh, the, the young people who are learning extra languages. Um, they can feel that they can... They can be a little bit special and um, and not worry about perfection. And, and Japanese especially, um, there's that kind of thing where 
they're, they're tested a lot and they're trying to do perfect English. They don't really need that perfect English in a way. As long as they can, as long as they can get by and make friends and do what they like, and um, in this study as well, that the two participants in this study, O.G. and uh, and now and Naoki, they kind of, um, I think they developed they O.G. in particular kind of moved away from feeling like he needed to be perfect uh, in his language communication. He kind of settled, came quite content and using the English and the Chinese they had to just make friends and have a good time for the final six months of his uh, time in Taiwan. Well, this is a really interesting study because you're playing in this space of interacting, like you, you talked about, like your your tools and the tool shed, right? So yeah. you have three languages at your disposal at various levels, right? Yeah. Including your native language. And then you're going to... Uh, another country where there's a different native language, and then not only that, you're inter you're interacting with different people who have different various skill levels, and mm -hmm. then then you tie into the idea of motivation, and that's where this this really gets interesting. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe bef before we move on, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. for the people that are just listening to this podcast and aren't going to read the chapter, which right. there are some, uh, <laughs> can you just take us through? Uh, you know, I'm at the point in the chapter uh, 2.1, um, monolingual bias and second language acquisition motivation re motivation research. For people yeah. that might not be so familiar, so can you take us through Gardner, Lambert, 1972, 19, and then Dornier, 1994, and Dornier, uh, 2005, and then maybe you could just talk about how this chapter situates in, in, in those uh, pathways. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the very... I mean, the the original kind of one SLA study. I mean, the, the, the title of that section is monolingual bias. I mean, in SLA, it's the idea that, like, it's it's the idea of having one language and then adding a second language onto it. Mm. And Gardner and Lambert's studies that started in the 70s, that was looking in Canada. And Canada is a bilingual context. And they have the integrative and instrumental motivation uh, the, those orientations and instrumental is the idea that you might say be an English speaker learning French for your career mm. uh, or to do well in a test and then the integrative motivation would be learning French so that you can uh, go to Quebec and uh, mingle with French speakers uh, marry a French speaker and things like that um, and then uh, but the trouble with that is mo that's, that works quite well. Integrative motivation works really well in, say, ESL. So, for example, uh, our students, when they're in America, for example, and they want to integrate into the target community of America, mm -hmm. it's, it's a really good idea. And maybe even before they go in the first year, before they go away. And it works well in Canada, which is bilingual. But um, most EFL contexts um english is just a subject it's just something that they're they're doing they have to pass a test for pass an entrance test or something and they've probably got no plan at all to go overseas mm -hmm. um so dernier was in 1994 was trying to look more uh, at the classroom and motivation in the classroom and then yashima uh, my colleague she looked at uh, the uh, international posture which is the idea of just like a, a feeling not towards one target community but kind of the the outside world in general uh, and the usefulness of english for that kind of communicating using uh, english the lingua franca global english and then um Dernier 2005, which is a really big one, which is still around now, is the L2 motivational self-system. And that has uh, three parts to it. There's the ideal self, uh, which is the idea that if there's a gap between who you are now and who you want to be, the kind of speaker you want to be, then you'll be motivated to work hard to reach that ideal. Mm. And then there's the ought to self, which is like, the what you ought to do to meet the expectations of others and i've got a feeling in japan that's quite a strong one um where mm. 
parents and teachers are saying you must work hard at English to do well. And the third one is the uh, learning experience. This one seems to get forgotten a lot, I think, as most people focus on the ideal self as the main one. But I think now um, research is doing like full circle almost, and a lot more researchers are, are looking at the learning experience, uh, what actually happens in the immediate learning environment, like the teacher and the classmates. And uh, like Joe Fallout, who you interviewed mm-hmm. earlier, he was like looking at like the, the baggage that people carry their past selves from their past learning experiences, how that affects their future. So I think that's that's becoming quite strong now. Now, now my study, because I'm looking at LOATs, le- uh, languages other than English, um, the idea is that um, too much of this research has focused on global English. In a way, global English, you can kind of almost, it's easier to generalize motivation for global English because there are so many people all over the world studying English for similar reasons because of the power of English. Mm-hmm. But uh, it doesn't necessarily meet the reality where the world is turning quite multilingual with people, well, not during the pandemic, but pre-pandemic and hopefully after the pandemic again, people able to move around a lot more and mix, becoming a lot more multilingual. So um, we need to study languages other than English. So, and, and that's where we move on to uh, Henry, which is what we used. And uh, Henry kind of is extending the ideal self, where the ideal self is kind of an ideal L2, where the L2 is, you're thinking of that as usually English, moving that onto a multilingual self where you might picture yourself in the future uh, using uh, multiple languages. And I think Henry was working in in Sweden, researching in Sweden, and uh, one of his participants imagined himself, I think, in the army uh, doing, for example, like... uh, first aid missions or, or, or humanitarian missions where he might be using various languages to help people in, in different countries. And um, and that kind of ideal multilingual self helped that participant to kind of overcome any difficulties or deficiencies in the language learning. That's what it's kind of all about in a way, isn't it? Because learning mm. a language is quite hard, isn't it? it? I mean, you know from learning Japanese, uh, it's so, so hard Mm. so if you you do need a strong kind of power there to kind of keep at it and so if you're learning more than one language and that language is not going to just give you know just fall away you're not going to give up and just switch to english only because let's face it you can get by with english now can't you almost anywhere in the world especially in europe where henry Mm. was his study well we don't. He said you need something above that to like pull pull yourself towards it for the to get through those difficult times. Yeah. yeah Sorry. We, no, it's no, it's perfect. We do, we don't maybe have time to go over all the studies, but I really one one yeah. reason why it's a good reason to read this chapter is uh, the the studies that you highlighted really show the way your research situates in the field. But also, if I can just read one section from the chapter. Yeah. I think this was a Dornier study. Um, if youngsters study German first, it could f- facilitate motivation for L3 English. However, in contrast, beginning with English earlier had a negative influence on L3 German motivation. Yeah. Um, so th- those are s- these interesting things that y- you can play around with language and, and motivation. And I think c- from a psychology perspective, that's where psychologists would be the most interested in things. Because, you know, language is so connected to identity, but then you have motivations and then you have self-determination theory and all. That's where it kind of gets really interesting. Um, To to kind of skip to the end and then we can back up a second. The end result was both of these individuals, when they got back to Japan, 
they studied more Chinese, but they got there in different ways. So would you say most of their influences were from their fellow students that they met? Well, that was what we kind of focused on, really. That, that was our focus. We, we, we gave them a survey where uh, they, they talked about how they used each language, including Japanese as well, and how often they used it. And with, each, with different people, how they communicated with different people. And so it was definitely a much more kind of person-to-person or student-to-student study. And um, the interesting thing was, and, and this is how it differs to the studies in Europe and uh, or in English-speaking countries where English, I mean, Dernier talked about it like Goliath, uh, global, or the shadow of global English kind of thing, where the other languages lose. Mm-hmm. In, in our study... The uh, English kind of facilitated the Chinese learning. It helped it out. And as you said, I mean, the the students, they they actually tended to work harder. Uh, One of them even changed majors uh, from English major to Chinese major after being in Taiwan. So um, Chinese uh, didn't lose out. Um, And to make friends... Uh, they were using their translanguaging, they were using their English tools to make friends and then overcome their their difficulties with the Chinese uh, to communicate. Um, what one one boy OG he realized that like English grammar and uh, Chinese grammar were very very similar. So mm. he was like, great fun. Just um, yeah, he kind of had a breakthrough. Yeah, he was just he's like, like, oh, I know the grammar now. My, I don't know the words. And he said, it, yeah. but that was a huge breakthrough for him. You yeah, tell. He's, he's such a character. I mean, uh, Tomoko interviewed him. Um, and uh, I, I listened to it, but it was in Japanese, and I had the translation. But he sounds like such a character, a uh, really funny guy, how he's uh, just, uh, he says he's rambling in Chinese, just like playing with the language there. And, uh, <laughs> you can imagine all these shocked Taiwanese around him, like uh, only understanding maybe 20% of what he's saying, but he's just going for it. And I think that's brilliant. Uh, the other guy, Naoki, um, was more, I think, a bit quieter and a bit, uh, he struggled more to communicate, to speak, but he, he just loved the uh, linguistic side, um, studying the, the kanji. Well, and there's even more layers as well because one of the one of the uh, participants said that you know when he was in Japan he was studying Chinese but the medium of instruction was Japanese yeah and then when they went to Taiwan the medium of instruction was Chinese so it was much harder from the start yeah so yeah. all these all these things it's it's funny you talked about he, he was a character. I was kind of thinking about this friend that I met when I was in the BAMP Center when I was studying music this uh, composer from Norway. Yeah, And I just thought, if I could just be like that guy in a different language, because he knew how to tell a joke. Yeah, yeah. He knew, he knew enough in so many languages. Like he could speak a little bit of French. He could speak a little bit of Spanish. He could speak English. One time there was these people from Sweden that came through. He was speaking in Swedish. But yeah. the, it was the, the <laughs> common theme was he could get people laughing. Yeah. And I just thought like, oh, if you could just do that, if I could get good enough at a language just to tell a joke – no one cares. No one cares if you're rambling or, or using weird words. You're just you're just funny, and then people respect you for for having all these skills. Definitely, definitely. And I, I think I mean in in the parallel study I've been doing, um, I've I've found like that students who are studying and they're trying to speak in England and other countries like that, uh, they they've left Japan where they've been feeling they have to reach perfection, you know, be the advanced class and all the rest of it. And then they're, they're meeting these other international students who will just babble in English, making loads of mistakes in the grammar and everything. But they're really entertaining and fun to hang out with. And then they're changing their role models. And um, I actually feel we, we, we probably do it a little bit wrong in Japan where we're trying to encourage students to – and the students themselves, though, they, they want this, though – that they want to go to – America or England or Australia and so on, and and meet these native speakers and be like them. But probably they're they're better off just hanging out with other international like uh, speakers who uh, 
who are learners of language too. That's such a good point. Yeah, if you're, yeah, a great point about the role model. If yeah. you see someone else getting through tasks in a foreign country, it is so powerful. Mm. Like if you if you go to the post office in Taiwan and your friend from Korea yeah. navigates that situation, you don't care. Well, it's like, whoa, okay, mission accomplished. On to the next thing. And Chris, uh, Chris Haswell told me this great story, which kind of sums up a lot of what you're talking about. His wife is a very proficient English speaker. She takes pride in it, right? Yeah. But, you know, she, of course, is Japanese and they have this idea about perfection, right? It's all about yeah. perfection. Yeah. And they were in his hometown, uh, Sheffield, I believe. And yeah. they were at a grocery store and there was, there was a person on a ladder sort of stocking shelves. And she said, like, excuse me, sir, would you mind telling me where the sandwich section is, right? <laughs> and he just stared at her like, what? Yeah. yeah. And two things. Chris teaches his students at QDI. Like always move forward. Don't be frustrated with like the lack of response. Either repeat it again or try something else. Like that's his main thing he teaches his students, which is great. But she didn't pass. She just got frustrated and just like stopped in her tracks, right? Yeah. Like she just like it was over, right? Yeah. And then Chris said, mate, sandwiches. (laughs) And he just pointed like over there, right? So it's like there's no way she could have been perfect finger quotes in that situation, right? Yeah. Yeah. He said two words. She said 20, right? (laughs) (laughs) That was a brilliant story. I I mean, I I think on so many levels, that's just so, so right, isn't it? I mean, we we get that in Japan as well, don't we? Where we we try, we try and we're with, we're often, it's like when you're with your, your spouse, like your, your, your Japanese spouse there with your wife and you, you go and you, you're, you're speaking what you think is, is, you know, pretty understandable Japanese, and then you're handing over your credit card and stuff like that, and then they just look at your wife and they say, oh, is it just like one-time payment or something like that in, in Japanese? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, <laughs> and you're crushed, aren't you? Oh, I was at I was at the grocery store the other day, and I guess this is a Nishitetsu, I don't know if you have these in Osaka, like a Nishitetsu, Nishitetsu subway line grocery store, right? Right. So I get to the checkout and I'm using my credit card, right? I pull up my credit card and I get, you know, in Japan, they have to follow the script no matter what. So she asks me, do you have an an Emoka card? Like, which is your subway card? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then then, uh, something happened. I got all confused. And I guess the point was I could get points on my Emoka card or I could pay with the money that's in my Emoka card. Uh... So. At a certain point, I'm holding the Nimoka card and the credit card. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, just make this go away. Just, I just wanted to like erase myself. I just, it was just one of those situations, right? And like, yeah, a native speaker would have just got through it quite easily. But I, I guess it's just like, you're just like, just let me pay. <laughs> just let me get out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, that's, that is why though. That's, that's another reason why. I mean... We're, we're talking about like our feelings, like say um, Chris Haswell's wife in, in England, and then our feelings in Japan. But there's also that thing where the the native speakers have this deficiency. The monolingual native speakers, they they don't understand how to how to deal with other language learners, and and that's why I think it's good for. Mm. Our That's students a good point. to hang out with other multilinguals or other language learners and, and talk to them. They're much easier to communicate with, much more sympathetic and exactly. much more willing to kind of I know, negotiate for meaning kind of thing. Well, if you talk, again, if you talk to Chris about his teaching philosophy, it's just that. Right. It's like it's like you need to either repeat the same sentence, have the confidence to say it exactly the same way twice, yeah. or or negotiate around it for the very reason you just said is that these people, like that guy stocking the shelf in Sheffield, England, England, has no concept of how different, difficult it is to speak a language. He's not making an effort. He's not your language teacher who's really no. making an effort to get this. He's stocking shelves. He's busy. He just didn't understand what you said for whatever reason. He could, he could be like that to everyone. He could be like that to his family. You don't know. Yeah. yeah. So totally. just push just push on through. It's easier said than done, of course. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think – yeah, with study abroad, it's it's maybe good if they if they have that little bit of time, maybe in a language school or something, meeting other international students to to build up their confidence before they're they're faced by boom, you know, like 
sitting with local students and struggling. It must be yeah. so demotivating. So demotivating. Okay, so the name yeah. of the, the chapter is I Forgot the Language, Japanese Students' Actual Multilingual Selves and Translanguaging Challenges as English Majors in Taiwan. What's the book again, Simon? English Medium Instruction Translanguaging Practices in Asia. So what's the best way for them to either purchase the book or read the chapter? I've, I've uploaded the preprint to um, uh, ResearchGate. So you could probably add a link for that, I guess, could you? Okay, yeah, I'll put a link to the so, research so, gate, sure. So they can read that for, for free. Uh, the preprint is almost the same. Um, the content is pretty much the same, just a few minor changes. So you can get the main ideas from the, from the preprint. Um, well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. And uh, yeah, let's do this again down the road. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.